Listen to the World Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with... Civil War Talk Radio. Civil War regimental histories, largely written by and for veterans, were once prized as primary sources for the events they described. Since the late 20th century, however, a generation of memory studies has taught historians not to rely on such works uncritically as evidence for what took place during the war. Professor Robert Hunt has turned the tables by writing a book based almost entirely on regimental histories, using them to show not just what happened during the war, but as evidence for the meaning of the war as perceived by those who fought in the Union's Army of the Cumberland. Join us today for an interview with the author of The Good Men Who Won the War, Army of the Cumberland Veterans and Emancipation Memory. He's Robert Hunt. And he'll be with us on Civil War Talk Radio. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. Do you know that digestive problems, ADHD, and chronic pain can be treated naturally? In fact, most health problems can be treated using integrative and alternative medicine. Find out about cancer prevention and managing diabetes. Learn how to use common herbs and spices to treat a variety of conditions. For the sake of your good health, tune in to Natural Solutions with your host, Dr. Sean Palmer. Broadcasting live every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the budget-strapped third floor of the Brewster Building in Greenville, North Carolina, on the campus of East Carolina University, part of the University of North Carolina system, but as is always the case, not speaking on behalf of the university, not representing their views, or certainly not those of our state legislature, uh, which uh, you wouldn't want to hear about. Uh, And I know my guest likewise will speak for himself, as we always do here on Civil War Talk Radio. Today is a lovely, a little bit warm June afternoon. It's hot all around the country here in the summer of 2011, but uh, air-conditioned inside. They haven't turned that off yet. And uh, we're near the end of the season. One more show in the 2010-11 academic year. Next week, uh, James Martin uh, will be talking to us about Civil War veterans a topic we'll be discussing today, in fact, as well. Uh, so uh, please tune in for that or download that when you get the chance. 
And then the summer of 2011, everybody can kick back, relax, uh, go to battlefields, uh, read books you haven't had a chance to read. And I'll be lining up guests for the fall season. I've got some good ones already in the offing. If you have ideas or suggestions, please uh, uh, look me up online at East Carolina University. Send me an email. Tell me who you'd like to hear from on the show. And uh, frequently those emails do turn into show topics within uh, uh, a remarkably short time. I'm always happy to get your suggestions. If you're going to be around Gettysburg, uh, a good place to visit this summer, uh, June, the week of June 26th is the annual Civil War Institute, uh, long since sold out, I'm sure, at Gettysburg College. But uh, if you're going to be there the 26th and 27th, I'll be there uh, as a guest of the Institute, mostly there just to uh, to schmooze and meet the other people speaking and, and get them onto the show. Although I was interested to look at the, the lecture lineup for the first two days, and just about everybody's already been on. Uh, so we'll, we'll keep looking for, for new talent, new people with things to say uh, about uh, the uh, the war of 1861-65. If you're going to be for some uh remote coincidence in Portland, Maine on August 10th. I'll be speaking there at Peaks Island at the Museum of the 5th Maine Regiment. Uh, the 5th Maine Regiment has its own uh, small uh, seasonal museum on Peaks Island in Portland Harbor. I've been to Maine many times but never been out to that island. I'm looking forward to uh, visiting with the folks there and that'll be on the evening of Wednesday, August 10th. So if you happen to be out that way, stop by and, and say hello. If you're not doing that, you can always keep track of what's happening on Civil War Talk Radio with the very useful website, impedimentsofwar.org, all one long word, impediments of war. It's worth going to just to look at the graphics, uh, all these fascinating, previously unknown photographs of uh, soldiers listening to jukeboxes uh, or giant uh, standalone radios. Uh, Lincoln and Tad uh, leaning uh, intently listening to Civil War talk radio on a, a tabletop set. Previously unknown, all these photographs until favorably retouched by webmaster Mark Gaffney to present the hidden story of wireless during the Civil War. Uh, U.S. Grant listening to his iPod hearing uh, past issues of, uh, of Civil War talk radio. So it's worth it just for the graphics. Go check out impedimentsofwar.org. Check out the associated uh, Facebook site. And as always, feel free to contribute uh, uh, your donations, not tax deductible, but welcome nonetheless. Uh, send $20 to Civil War Talk Radio, uh, Civil War TR at AOL.com. I'll be happy to send you a copy of All for the Regiment. You can learn about the Army of the Ohio, which we'll be discussing today. Or I'll send Did Lincoln Own Slaves if you want to learn some of the wacky questions people have asked about Abraham Lincoln over time and, and, and my answers to those questions. Uh, so feel free to contribute. Uh, I'm at this very moment uh, scouring for a copy of uh, the book to discuss next Friday. Our uh, benighted university library doesn't have uh, a copy on order for some reason. And I'm hoping UNC Press will, will ship one here pronto. Uh, if if uh, I delve into the Civil War Book Fund uh, to get it here, that they can get it here in time for me to read it for next week. I know they will, but uh, that's what the fund's for. So so feel free to 
contribute to that. Always welcome uh, when you can do that. So that's uh, that's where we are. Things are always interesting here on campus. We learned in the past week our uh, maritime program, a, a subset of the history department, uh, which has looked at many fascinating underwater historical sites around the country, uh, has been tangentially involved with things like the Monitor Project, uh, and whose founder, William Still, has not yet been a guest because I can't get hold of him. Bill Still has written about Confederate uh, ironclads, has, has written uh, a lot of Civil War material, but he's retired and he's in Hawaii or he's diving somewhere. He's always doing something, and, and we'll get him on the show one day. Uh, but I bring this up to say uh, we learned this past week we have to move the whole program for uh, out of its antiquated current facility to an ADA-compliant facility, but there's no space on campus. What are they going to do? Put it into an existing building, build something new and temporary? Who knows? Um, but the summer promises to be full of, of that kind of adventure, along with the usual bureaucratic nonsense. And I hope uh, our, our guest today doesn't have the kind of stories I'm experiencing this summer about, uh, uh, oh, we'd like uh, to do a study of the entire university and prioritize all the programs from top to bottom. Just give us the following 700 data points on your department and do it in the next three weeks. Uh, don't mind the fact that all your faculty are out of town. Just do it yourself. Uh, that's the kind of thing we're getting as they prioritize the programs uh, in order to cut the ones at the bottom as if uh, should English department turn out to be at the bottom in, in credit hours per faculty member, they were going to cut the English department. Uh, you can't have a university without one, or history for that matter. It's it's bureaucracy gone wild. It's uh, makes you long for uh, a good administrator, a Braxton Bragg, uh, a George McCollum, not necessarily a good war fighter, but someone who could run a tight ship uh, to, to come in here and straighten things out. But uh, but enough belly aching. Let's, let's go back uh, for what I think of as the, the hour vacation each week uh, back to the war years, or in this case, a little after the war years, perhaps, and talk about uh, the veterans of what I, I sometimes parochially think of as my army, uh, the subject of, of all for the regiment, the Army of the Ohio, later known as the Army of the Cumberland. Their veterans uh, wrote about the war, and uh, Robert Hunt has written about those veterans. Uh, Dr. Hunt, are you there? Uh, yes, I am. Well, thank you for being on the show today. Well, I'm I'm enjoying it. I was I was listening to you discuss uh, your interesting uh, situations in North Carolina, and you can you can feel uh, happy that uh, we in Tennessee are undergoing all kinds of things that are very similar to that. Well, you're at Middle Tennessee State, That's uh, is that right? So, mm -hmm. uh, so that, that that in some ways I think is might, might even be a peer for East Carolina in terms of size. It, and it pretty much is. Yeah, uh, we're we're about twenty seven thousand students, and we're essentially suburban Nashville. Yeah, so we're we're in very much the same ballpark. Although here, Greenville, we're we're in the middle of of nowhere, and uh, that's uh, an, an oasis of cosmopolitanism in in the bleak. Well, I, I'm not going to talk down Eastern Carolina because that's that's part of our university direction. Our strategic goals are to play up the area, so I'll do that instead. Uh, but there's no Nashville for us to uh, uh, to resort to, unfortunately. So. Uh, but enough about uh, about us. We're here to talk uh, Civil War. And when I got hold of this book originally, I was delighted to see it uh, for a number of reasons, the first of which is its uh, its length, which is under 200 pages. Mm -hmm. And 
I, I won't call it a disease, but I think there are some people who feel that if they uh, if they have something to say, they have everything to say on a topic. Uh, there, there are there are some some battle books, for example, that are, are you know six seven hundred pages long. Uh, and after the 400th page, one starts to get the feeling, I know what's going to happen next. <laughs> uh, here, you, you got to the point. Um, tell, tell us a little bit about uh, generally what this book is about. Uh, what's what's the, the, the main idea? And we'll, we'll work from there. Okay. Well, the, the basic main idea of it is that I'm, I was reacting uh, to a literature uh, that's been in the historic profession for about 10, 15 years now, which essentially argues that... Um, coming out of the Civil War, the North not only had understood that it had won, but it was also committed at some level to Reconstruction. And the Civil War veterans were also part of that, too. They considered that as, as part of, uh, uh, part of the, uh, the victory. But as time went on, uh, the theme of reconciliation tended to replace the theme of victory and Reconstruction. And by the time you get to 1900, according to this literature, um, the stress is on uh, Union veterans and Confederate veterans reaching over the, the brick wall, as it were, or the stone wall, I should say, uh, clasping hands and creating this notion of a civil war as a kind of chess game in which one side outwitted the other, but no other issues seemed to be afoot, and the whole issue of emancipation just simply got um, just swept under the rug. Well, my argument is that at least as far as the uh, veterans of the Army of the Cumberland are concerned, uh, they made no such reconciliation. Um, they were devoted uh, throughout uh, all of the balance of the memoirs, and they were writing memoirs up until 1928. Uh, they were committed all the way through uh, the balance of the memoirs to the victory that they understood that they had won. They were not part of a, reconcili a reconciliation motif at all. Uh, and that it included uh, an understanding of emancipation, although their understanding of emancipation is not exactly um, the Reconstruction understanding of that. Uh, but the last thing that they were willing to do was just simply forgive and forget as far as the Confederacy was concerned. Uh, and the last thing that they were willing to do was forget that they won the war. So this this reconciliationist literature, uh, I guess David Blight would be the the the, the center sure. spokesman for that. Sure. Um, uh, and he argues, as you said, that that by certainly by 1913, the famous 50th anniversary of Gettysburg, the uh, the country has at least agreed to shake hands across the wall and, and to, or, or not the country, but. Uh, White Northerners and White Southerners have agreed to to shake hands across the wall, mm -hmm. and you're you're saying that 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 that's are you saying that's not the case at all, or, or that, that that's exaggerated? Well, I, what I'm arguing is that if you're looking at if you're looking at Union veterans, mm -hmm. uh, or at least my Union veterans, the Army of the Cumberland guys, uh, they don't make that transformation. Now, that's that's not to say that there's not a reconciliation movement. Of course, there is. Uh, it's not to say that there aren't, you know, reunions all over the country or blue and gray camps and so forth and so on. That's going on all over the place, sure. But when you take a look very specifically at um, the military memoirs produced by all of these regimental historians, and of course they're all acting independently of each other um, over a long space of time, uh, they really don't, uh, for the most part, 
become involved in this reconciliation movement. They they keep a very, um, I guess you could say, northern victory sense of the war all the way through. And so that's that's basically the argument, that not that there's not a reconciliation movement, it's just that these Army of the Cumberland uh, veterans aren't part of it. I'm wondering if we're moving historiographically into an era where the the Reconstruction era is really going to become much more of a focus. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I suppose as we get to the 150th anniversary of, of the post-war era, that may be the case. But it strikes me there have been some interesting books on Reconstruction lately, and the... The, there, there's a sense of that era that, that you know, Eric Foner certainly uh, championed uh, uh, the the un uh, the, the incomp- un- incomplete right, revolution, the unfinished revolution, unfinished revolution. That, right. that things. Well, I mean, to, to step back and, and listeners, uh, you know, listeners older than than I am, uh, listeners who remember the centennial and, and, and older will have been brought up on, on the remnants of the Dunning School uh, that, that you know Reconstruction was a horrible time and the North was wicked and then forced the South to uh, to, to to give in to all kinds of evil uh, practices. That view is long since gone, uh, and there's a, a recognition that, that in Reconstruction, Northerners largely tried to, to, to just enforce the, the victory in the war, meaning the end of slavery, among other things. Uh, and you're saying that that, that is exactly what the, the Union veterans, the Army of the, the Cumberland veterans, uh, believed, not just through 1860s and 70s, but on, on to the turn of the century. Well, that they are... I think the issue of, of Reconstruction itself, if, if we mean by that the Republican Party's policies in first drafting the 14th Amendment and then attempting to enforce it, and then the 15th Amendment uh, attempting to create state Republican parties, um, the, the Union veterans, or the Cumberland veterans, I guess I really should say, um, are, I guess you could say, willing to cut their losses when that goes away. Uh, they are not necessarily wedded to literal Republican Reconstruction policy uh, as the way to enforce emancipation. Uh, I mean, there are several Democrats among the Army of the Cumberland Vets and who identify themselves as that, and, and they have some, some skepticism about Reconstruction. Uh, but what, what they're not willing to do is go to the other end of that scale, which is basically to say that, uh, in effect, um, everything about the Union victory uh, needs to be just sort of forgotten and that what we need to do is create a brotherhood, white, north and south. They're not willing to go that way at all. Um, What they're trying to uh, preserve really is a sense of their victory in the war in which that notion of emancipation war is still at the center of it. Uh, But they have to hold emancipation at the center of the war without necessarily still holding on to the literal reality of Reconstruction policy if we want to identify the 14th and 15th Amendments as, as central to that. Because those, the, these memoir writers go on long after you know, 1880. In fact, that's when I picked these writings up, is in 1880. Uh, they go long after 1880 and long after the supposed uh, demise of Reconstruction has happened. And they're still they're still holding to what they consider to be uh, a victory of the war that includes emancipation. I, I think that's uh, I find that very interesting. The 
uh, my colleague here at, at East Carolina, Chuck Calhoun, uh, wrote a book, uh, Conceiving a New Republic, right. on the Republican Absolutely. Party. Love that. Uh, it, it, it's a wonderful book, and, and uh, I can't wait for Chuck to finish his, his book on Grant. I'll have him on the show, and listeners can... Uh, can can hear him for himself, but but he writes about how the Lodge Bill of, of 1890 the, was a federal election reform law, Voting Rights Act, basically, that very nearly passed, mm-hmm. and that as late as 1890, Republicans in, in the Senate are still fighting mm-hmm. for Reconstruction as uh, as you were describing it as a uh, an actual embodiment of the 14th and 15th Amendments. So it's it's not dead, even legislatively by 1890. But certainly by 1900, by 1910, uh, the Republican Party has given up uh, mm-hmm. on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yet even at that point, you're saying that the Cumberland veterans, uh, while they may, have, they may not be fighting for particular legislation, mm-hmm. their understanding of the war is still firmly rooted in, in emancipation. Yes, that's correct. Um, they, what, what I find interesting in terms of what they do is, is how they incorporate emancipation into, or the, I guess you could say keep emancipation alive. Um, and that brings up one of the, the major um, ways that I have of trying to formulate this book, and, and that is this, that you have in the North Civil War something that is a little bit well, it's unprecedented other than perhaps the revolution itself, in that in in the wars up until that time, particularly the Indian Wars, um, the Americans, if you want to put it this way, have been able to create some really intense victories. And what they get out of those victories is complete control over the landscape that, that they when that they then want to take over. Of course, the Indian Wars are, are a case in point in this. And what you run into in the Civil War uh, for the North is a situation in which now, for reasons, uh, you really cannot take what you you might otherwise want to have be your victory in this war and suddenly impose it on your loser because you don't really have the power to do that. Um, you know, to paraphrase Eric Foner again, I mean, it may be an unfinished revolution, but, but that's that's the case because the Republican North really cannot fully impose, I guess you could say, a kind of free labor settlement on the Confederate South. And so now um, these veterans, as well as everybody in the North that had been been part of the original war effort, has to deal with the fact of redefining a victory that I won't say is slipping away, but you're going to have to redefine what it is. And that's where I get into this. some of this well, well, I guess I should put it this way. When I was doing the actual research and reading through these memoirs, it kept striking me uh, that, you know, these guys sound a lot like <laughs> people talking about World War II uh, in that they, they talk about the growing ability of the army uh, to, pr- to become more and more destructive uh, in, in the military efficient sense. And yet at the same time, what they're doing with all of this is preserving the homeland that they want to come, go back to. And they're also talking about the selflessness of the act that they're performing, uh, that they're doing this not really for themselves. They're doing this and not just for the future of the nation. They're doing this for this, for this people that need to be liberated. And it's, 
it would just kept hitting me over and over and over again. They would save some version of this. And it seems to me that this is what they're doing, is whatever their original position on what you might call the politics of Reconstruction, what they decide to do uh, as kind of a group, even though they're writing these memoirs independently of each other, is they start to not abandon the victory, they start to redefine it. Uh, but in redefining it, they, they truly preserve it, and it is an emancipation war to them. And, and they would insist on that up until literally their dying day. This, I find uh, one thing that, that frustrates me or, is when I'll be talking to uh, a Civil War enthusiast or a student who will uh, point out, well, of course, uh, the, the winners write the history. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the Civil War, that doesn't seem to be the case at all. Uh, to a large extent, the Confederacy uh, wrote the, the history or, or, or created the narrative that, that dominated American thinking about the war for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the but they didn't do it without a fight. The, the veterans, the northern veterans, are creating their own. Let's take a break on that thought, come back in just a minute, and talk more about how one, how one writes the history of a war from either side. Our guest today is Professor Robert Hunt. He's written how The Good Men Who Won the War, Army of the Cumberland Veterans and Emancipation Memory. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and we'll be right back with more Civil War Talk Radio. You don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take World Talk Radio on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. If you're looking for answers and solutions, you don't have to look to expensive treatments, consultations, and methods. All you have to do is listen to your connections. Every week, the Dr. Melanie Show will teach you how to do just that. Dr. Melanie Barton will share her gifts and talents and teach you to do the same. And in doing so, find the solutions to the issues in your life that you truly need. You'll learn about holistic and practical health in six key areas. Discover the Dr. Melanie Show, Thursdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Holistic healing has been around for over 5,000 years. The basic concept is that of treating the whole person and encouraging a healthy way of living in harmony with nature and the core self. Every week, take some time out for Holistic Healing Moment with host Elizabeth Ami. What is out there and how does it help on the transformational path of healing body, mind, and spirit? No matter where you are on your path, there will be a topic that will speak just to you. Tune in to Holistic Healing Moment, Mondays at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific, on World Talk Radio Variety. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Robert Hunt, author of The Good Men Who Won the War, Army of the Cumberland Veterans, and Emancipation Memory. In our first segment, we talked about how the veterans of the Army of the Cumberland, originally called the Army of the Ohio, uh, wrote about the war in its aftermath and preserved uh, to the end of their days, at least according to their memoirs, uh, a vision of the war in which emancipation was central. 
And that may not seem remarkable, given that emancipation was obviously a central part of the war, but uh, many historians, uh, foremost among them David Blight uh, of Yale, but many others have interpreted, uh, and I think to a large degree accurately, that the country shifted by uh, by the early 20th century to a reconciliationist position uh, in which both sides accepted the the innate justice of the other side, that they were good good guys, too. It was a misunderstanding among brothers, and we could celebrate the bravery and uh, common Anglo-Saxon heritage of all concerned and uh, forget about any political issues. Uh, uh, the North promises to forget about slavery if the South agrees to forget about secession, and we'll just move on from there. Uh, that, that was largely... Uh, uh, the way many people approached it, but uh, but Robert, as you argue, that's not how the the soldiers themselves saw it, or at least uh, not they, they didn't give up the idea that they had in fact won the war. Uh, that the northern soldiers did not give up that concept. Uh, is that a fair statement? Absolutely correct. Yeah, they uh, they remained devoted to. They not only remained devoted to the idea that they won the war. They they remained devoted to their understanding of what they what they went to war to fight, uh, that the Confederacy was a real threat, uh, that secession was in point of fact, a, uh, if you want to put it this way, a bogus or a corrupt movement, uh, that it was the product of, at least among some of the writers who write, it was the product of a slave power conspiracy, as the phrase used to be. Um, I mean, they preserve in their memoirs uh, a memory of what uh, of what their understanding of what they were fighting during the time was about. They they preserve their 1860s memory of the war or write it into their memoirs, and then they pre- and then they then they essentially say, well, this is something that we're going to carry forward. And we will not forget why we did this. <laughs> I guess you might put it that way. Which is interesting because you point out the. Uh the motivation for going to war uh, largely was to preserve the Union, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, Gary Gallagher and others today are, are, are arguing and trying to make clear, I think, to a new generation of readers how passionate Americans in the North could be about this abstract thing called the Union. Uh, mm-hmm. that, Definitely. It's it's easy to understand fighting for one's homeland, or even uh, easy to understand, if not agree, with fighting for a social system like slavery, if that's all you've known. But fighting for the Union seems uh, kind of obscure to to people today, yet they were extraordinarily passionate. But what I want to ask you is is that that emancipation was not why they went to war uh, for most of these men. That's correct. Uh, so, so how is it that that becomes so much part of their memory? I think uh, a big part of that is that this, well, many people often think of the Civil War as a war of battle, uh, and it is, of course. Uh, it's a war of campaigns. It's a Napoleonic war in its way. Uh, but for the North, it's also a war of invasion. And the war, in point of fact, will be won as a war of invasion with all of the elements that go with that. Well, that means for the actual soldiers who are involved in the army, uh, they are footing it 
through Kentucky down into Tennessee and then down into Georgia or uh, if they're part of the fourth corps they go back to Tennessee but they but they are they are in the middle of an invasion really from very very early on in the war the spring of 1862 if you want to count the taking of Nashville as the the beginning of it um, and that means that they see a lot uh, among other things, uh, they see the defiance of the Confederate civilians that they run into. They also see the behavior of the slaves. Uh, they also see Southern society and the institution of slavery. And they proceed to interpret all of these things. And I think um, what starts to go on in their mind is, is something that might might have this kind of a progression to it. That they originally join up, of course, in reaction to Fort Sumter, and that that is, you know, a blow at the Union. That is a blow at really the 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 whole idea of self-government. And so they're they're going to protect the honor of the flag, and they're going to protect uh, the honor of the Union. But now, once they they get into this invasion thing, they begin to see, if you want to put it this way, who their enemy really is. And all of the discussion about slavery that's gone on for the previous 30, 40 years that's been in all the papers, that's been in every political campaign, now they really start to see this thing on the ground. And there are a number of soldiers who, or I'm sorry, uh, memorialists who write in their memoirs about some incident. Uh, oh, we saw this woman who was chained to a floor to prevent her from running away. That's one anecdote that comes out of a memoir. Uh, quite common, they will talk about having some um, some refugee come to camp, and then a group of uh, a group of slave owners will tr- attempt to enter their army camp to retrieve this refugee. And these soldiers don't take kindly to having their camp interfered with, and this starts a discussion. I mean, all kinds of things start to happen in which they start to experience slavery on the ground, and they also start to get more and more defiance from Confederate civilians. And as that experience builds, they begin to shift from just embracing a war to restore the Union, if you want to put it that way, to we are now in a war of invasion in which we're crushing a corrupt society. Um, I mean, you could, you could put it that, you know, everything Harriet Beecher Stowe said turned out to be right, uh, and that we have to really crush this slave society, not just this disunion movement. And I find that that, that sort of progression particularly uh, important when you have a self-identified former Democratic soldier say that. Uh, William Sipes from the 7th Pennsylvania Cavalry very, very clearly says, you know, our regiment was composed of Democrats. He had edited a Douglas Democratic paper. He didn't go south to, you know, engage in anything like a Republican war. But then he says, when when we started to see all of these slaves begging us for freedom, and, and when we started to see... Uh, how this institution really worked, uh, well, okay, we changed our minds about it. So I think emancipation becomes uh, a part of the war for the Army of the Cumberland uh, because of what they do is an invading army. And that's one of the reasons I, I studied this army, other than the fact that I live in Middle Tennessee, is that this is an invasion army. It's an occupation army. Uh, it's 
it's not the Army of the Potomac that has to worry about Robert E. Lee all the time. This is a military geography army in which they're talking about territory uh, and territory and the population on it. So I think it's the experience of the war itself that does this. And, uh, the Army of the Cumberland is also well-suited uh, for making that point because uh, while you, you quote the, the one soldier from Pennsylvania, there were only a handful of Pennsylvania regiments right. uh, and none from New York or Massachusetts. Right. It was entirely a Midwestern army. Absolutely. So these are, are more likely to be uh, uh, Democrats, more likely to be conservative, more likely to be, uh, you know, not to be uh, uh, abolitionist, and yet they undergo this transformation, this radicalization. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you about that, though. Uh, the, uh, the the sack of Athens, Alabama, in, in mm-hmm. May of 1862 is a, a in many ways a turning point when uh, a brigade of, of soldiers from the army is, is shot at by bushwhackers and their brigade commander uh, decides to punish the town by by uh, closing his eyes for two hours, as he says. He's just going to let the the troops have their way, uh, and they, they they ransack the town. That kind of behavior, again, in, in 1861, when you're going to war to preserve the Union, you're not planning to go ransack southern villages. Uh, but uh, by 1862, I, I guess my question is, are the men radicalized in terms of slavery and in terms of, of viewing southern resistance on the ground where they feel now this is justified? Or is this... To what extent is this also just a part of the the coarsening uh, effect of war? That, that uh, no one, you know, went to war in World War II intending to commit atrocities. No one was drafted for Vietnam with the goal of burning a village. And I'm, I'm sure none of our uh, men and women fighting today have have the object of, of hurting civilians in the Middle East or Afghanistan. But under the pressure of war, things happen. Uh, is that an element in what happens to the Army of the Cumberland? Yeah, I think it's very definitely an element in, in what happens. And I think um, sort of in two respects. I, I think in, in one sense, it's as, as a number of the uh, memoir writers comment, uh, they see pretty early that this is a resource war. Uh, that, well, just to put it in the slave context, uh, well, no wonder there's a bunch of, you know, young men joining the Confederate Army. They can afford to to leave the area when their slaves are doing the actual agricultural work. I mean, the 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 notion that you're you're in a war in which eventually resource destruction, at the very least, is going to become part of what's going on. Uh, that's something that that at least according to the memoir literature occurs to the men pretty early in the game. The other thing I think that's that's going on is that these are people who you know even though they're not professional soldiers, they're citizens who have joined the army do join a uniformed military force in which it's presumed there are certain rules of the game of fighting. Uh and you know there is, as you well know, because you study this yourself, uh, there is this whole issue of of how do you discipline a group of citizen soldiers according to a West Point formula, and that's always a very very tense thing. But there is this notion that that war is there is a difference between the way, if I can put it, say civilized people fight and what you might call Indian War, or they would have called Indian War or Comanche War. 
and they're kind of hoping that you know this is going to be how it actually plays itself out. Well, you suddenly go into any of these areas, and of course, the original Army of the Ohio, as as you note, is spread out in a number of different brigades and divisions. Uh, northern Alabama and southern middle Tennessee, they're quite exposed to civilian resistance. And all of a sudden, when they start to experience the ambush, uh, all of a sudden, when they start to have uh, people shot down and it's not really fair and they go in and uh, into an area and they start to ask, you know, well, who was doing this? And nobody gives them a straight answer. Uh, that starts to turn them. And I, th I think that's something that happens in a lot of wars. I mean, the, the very famous uh, or infamous, as you wish, um, Rape of Belgium, as it's called in World War One, when the German army is, you know, moving through Belgium at a racing clip, and they certainly start drawing sniper fire. Well, their their immediate uh, response to that is, well, this is front de roar. These are these civilians who are essentially fighting um, in ambush at it. We must punish for this. And I, I think it's just it's 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 one of those situations where an army goes into an into an enemy territory. It is hoping that it is going to be able to fight by a certain set of rules. It's it finds that that's not going to happen, uh, and they start to turn real harsh real fast. And then it becomes an issue of how do you discipline that? Well, that uh, a couple things uh, come to mind there. One is the the point about rules. Were, the war was so much more rule bound. Uh, uh, there's there's a paragraph in, in I think William Dodge's history of the Second Division where he talks about Confederate cavalry dashing down upon the the pickets outside of Nashville, the, the Union pickets, and, and shooting a few of them. These are uniformed men, uh, you know, in combat against other armed men. It, it, we would consider it today just a skirmish. Mm -hmm. But he writes, this was wanton murder. This was, there was no battle going on. This wasn't going to change the course of the war. Mm -hmm. To shoot these men was, was, was murder in his view. Uh, but in that sense, it broke the rules that they expected to, to see, and, and they respond as you described. But when you mentioned discipline, um, there's a book that I confess not having read yet, uh, Stephen Rammel's book on uh, discipline in the Union Army. Uh, which I hope I can get to this summer and have him on in the fall. Uh, but from from what I know of it and, and reviews I've seen, he argues that there was a lot of discipline imposed. There were a lot of bad characters uh, in the Union armies, uh, plural. You call your book uh, "The Good Men Who Won the mm -hmm. War." You're you're taking a different stand in terms of, of what kind of discipline was needed here. Well, I don't know that I'm necessarily taking a different stand. Uh, it's just these are the people who you know lived through the war. These are the people who made it all the way to victory, and these are, of course, the people who are writing the regimental histories afterwards. Uh, they're not going to tell you everything. Um, you know, there, there's, I'm sure there are many, many things that go on uh, in the way these armies, uh, all of them, uh, are, are the, the way that things happen to them as they move south that they're not going to necessarily talk about. But what I find actually interesting is the amount of candor that they actually do come up with. Um, that you know they will talk about you know people who are thieves and people who are looters and uh, they will express disgust at it. Um, what what they tend not to 
well, I'll put it this way. They, they don't go as full-fledged into the discipline question as, say, Richard Bruce Winders does when he talks about volunteers in the Mexican army, uh, in which, you know, you have this extreme sense of contempt from the regulars to the volunteers, that the volunteers are just almost unmanageable. Um, you know, the, the issue of discipline for these, for these writers is there. They talk about the fact that there's this kind of constant struggle between themselves and their officers. But they, they kind of walk a line between, you know, we'll tell you some of the things that have happened, but we're really not going to tell you how bad it could get. Uh, because, you know, that, that, that carries some risks with it. Well, let's take another break here and stop to think about uh, these issues. I'm going to ask you about uh, the, the regimental histories themselves when we come back. Uh, we're talking today with Robert Hunt about the Army of the Cumberland and its veterans. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. We'll take a short break and come back with more Civil War Talk Radio. World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. No family can survive on two incomes anymore, let alone one. If you are supplementing your family's income working from home, then tune into The Cash Flow Show, Direct Sales Radio. Host Deb Bixler brings you sales tips, lead generation systems, and best business practices that guarantee direct sales success. Whether you're looking for a little extra cash or a career change, The Cash Flow Show, Direct Sales Radio, will give you proven systems that will work in your home business. The Cash Flow Show. Every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on World Talk Radio Variety. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. I'm talking today with Robert Hunt, author of The Good Men Who Won the War, Army of the Cumberland Veterans and Emancipation Memory, uh, a very interesting book that uh, talks about the men who served in the Army of the Cumberland, originally known as the Army of the Ohio, uh, uh, a book, uh, a subject I've written about and uh, dear to my own interest. And in this case, uh, Dr. Hunt looks at what these men did after the war, or rather how they thought about the war after the war. Um, Robert, uh, one of the things I liked about this book was that I turned to the index and see if my own name is in it, which is what all of us do when we get a new book on a topic we're related to. And when it was there, I said, okay, I'll read it. Uh, But what I also... uh, uh, liked was the reliance on memoirs, on... on, uh, uh, memory literature. Uh, you make that, that point of historiography. That, I mean, you did that intentionally, obviously, right. because your subject was not literally what they did during the war, but how they conceptualized and remembered it after, say, 1880. So you, you have a very clear uh, approach, a very clear methodological statement that you were intentionally relying on the regimental histories written uh, after 1880. Uh, Talk about what regimental histories were. How did they come to be written? Who wrote them? Who were they for? Oh, okay. Um, you have a real variety 
Um, you know, many of the many of the regiments, of course, have continual meetings uh, at various times after the war, and at least according to the way the the memoir writers write it, there there comes a moment. You know, it could be 1888, it could be 1884, it could be 1890, but there comes a moment, and they start to realize that they're getting fewer and fewer in number. Uh, and, oh, well, somebody needs to write this regimental history. and Or they've appointed some committee, and the committee's been, oh, well, we're going to write this thing, and they never do, and, well, somebody has to make a choice, and somebody gets saddled with doing it. And it's almost like, you know, you went out to the bathroom and came back from the bathroom, and it's, oh, you're elected to write this. You volunteered. That's you right. volunteered. So, oh, you know, you know, so, okay, so they sit down and do it. And it's, it, it literally sounds like that. I mean, they're just, uh, they're composed at very different times in very different situations. And what, what seems to be the trigger in this is that they do start to perceive that they they're losing numbers now, or the time is marching on. They're getting a lot grayer now. Um, I won't say the world is passing them by, but but certainly they are are advancing in years. And their story is is therefore going to, you know, is in danger of disappearing if they don't write it down. And so if for no other reason then they want to preserve this memory for their the families of the members of the regiment. They will proceed to write this thing up. And some of them, as I, I say in the book, are very, very elaborate. I mean, the, the Charles Partridge one is something like 1,100 pages long. I mean, they they will assemble diaries. They will bring in every kind of material that they can possibly imagine. Uh, some will, will publish uh, basically all the muster rolls in them. I mean, they they can be very elaborate. Some can be just almost tiny, uh, but but they but they have this sense that they have to preserve the memory of their regiment, and and it's interesting that they do it as regimentals. I mean, it it kind of testifies to the idea that you know a point that you make in their book that that regiment is such a very important uh, point of identity and sense of military service, and that stays with them. Uh, when they come back home, and it's it's just more than any other single thing. Um, here we are, ages advancing. We want to make sure our story gets preserved, and so he here we will write this thing, and we will publish it. We will publish it. It it will be in a real life bound volume, so it can be read. So it is a public act. And they, I'm curious, how many people. How many do they publish? Uh, I, I'm thinking out loud. So I know some of them were done by subscription, where the members would, would pay in advance to make sure they got a copy. Uh, but the fact that you can find these in libraries or historical libraries, at least around the country to this day, uh, means that they, were, they were not just you know, vanity press books published. Well, some of them, I suppose, were privately published just for the members, but but some of them must have expected to get at least some audience of readers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, so I, absolutely. I mean, some of them, uh, particularly some uh, those written by the officers, uh, are some pretty serious military history. 
I mean, they, you know, they're they're evaluating Sherman, they're evaluating Grant, they're evaluating Thomas. They're sitting there meticulously going over this movement, that movement, the other movement. So, so they are understood. Uh, at least some of these are understood as something other than just the regimental memory. Uh, they are really seeing themselves as writing a history of the war from the microcosmic perspective. You know, their regiment, and we'll look out from beyond all that. <laughs> Having read these, and, and uh, often when I get a new book, I'll look at the bibliography and sort of mentally chuck off which books I've read, uh, see what what common ground I have with the author. And I think you your book has the highest coefficient I've ever had. I think I, I'd read ninety five percent because our topics are so so similar. Right. Yeah, we're in the same uh, and and so my the question I have to ask is which one which were your favorites of the regimental histories or the the officer memoirs. Oh, Benjamin Franklin McGee is a definite favorite uh, for any number of reasons. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. you, you've got somebody who is writing very definitely uh, an emancipation memoir. Uh, he's also part of Wilder's Brigade. Mm-hmm. And when you're talking about you know transformation of the war itself... I mean, literally the military aspects of it. I mean, here's a guy who's talking about the Spencer repeating weapon and, you know, how it's changing tactics. Um, he's also alive to the whole issue of guerrilla warfare. I mean, he's he's the source of one of the anecdotes about, you know, blacks, quote-unquote, are our greatest friends because they he tries to save this guy who has been ambushed by guerrillas. I mean, McGee's a great one. Um, I think that one I really didn't... You know, I mentioned it, but I didn't really explore it, and I kind of regret I didn't, uh, is Marvin Butler's one on the Underground Railroad, hmm. uh, because it's so bizarre. Uh, it, it's not really a regimental history. It's just this kind of abolitionist romance drama uh, that he proceeds to write about, and it's it's all about... Uh, two individuals who are the the mulatto children of a slave who end up being you know having to run and flee for their lives. I mean, it's it's almost like a, a slave narrative piece. Uh, that's a very very interesting one. Um, uh, and well, definitely Wilbur Wilbur Hinman. That, that's uh, what I was just going to ask you about the Sherman Brigade, and then and then the the Corporal Sly uh, Sly Clegg book. I mean, that's that's some of the most comprehensive stuff that I think you'll read about the Civil War from a soldier's perspective. I, I think he gets it absolutely right as far as how most of these guys actually feel. Well, the, so those would be my, those would be the ones that really hit. Yeah, Hinman, uh, the, the book of, of Corporal Cy Clegg, or Cy Clegg and his pard, uh, uh, that was a, a book that the soldiers themselves loved. Uh, mm-hmm. In term, it, It's actually fictional, uh, right. but it's very, very thinly disguised. Mm-hmm. Uh, clearly, it, it's a telling of, of his own experiences or, or typical soldiers' experiences in the Army of the Cumberland. Uh, and, and that one uh, really does... Give give the story uh, uh, of the individual soldier. Um, th- there are so many interesting ones here. If, for anyone who wants to read, uh, I mean, just, just again looking at your bibliography bring, brings back the the officers, uh, Bishop, the Second Minnesota, mm-hmm. or uh, mm-hmm. uh, Beatty, the uh, the Ohio, the Citizen Volunteer. Right. Um, uh, these guys could all really write. Uh, yeah. or, or Scribner, another one. Uh, how, mm-hmm. how soldiers were made. 
uh, comes to mind. These, these guys were all really good writers. Uh, and then Albie and Tourget may be the best uh, yeah, as a stylist. Mm-hmm. Um, well, let me ask, did you read letters as well, uh, unpublished material by these people? And if so, were, they all, were the soldiers good writers too? Well, actually, no, I, I wanted to stick... Uh, I, w- I wanted to stick with the actual published material. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the, the I guess you could say the sculpted memory, mm-hmm. because it, I mean, this is this is their public action, and so I I I stayed off of the uh, I guess you could say the manuscript material. Mm-hmm. I guess when I wrote on the Army of the Ohio, I did read a lot of the the memoirs, a lot of the regimentals, mm-hmm. and that was. The, the the fashion had not turned against them. Uh, where there are some people you can talk to today, oh, I, would, I won't use them at all. Uh, I, I would still hold their their they can be used with uh, with care for as actual evidence of what did happen, mm-hmm. as well as what they thought. But uh, uh, but but there were there are so many good stories in those books um, uh, that, that one one hates to see them not being used. So when you found a way to use them, I was I just stood up and cheered. I thought that was a great. Uh, a great historiographical strategy to to resurrect these because they're wonderful pieces of, of writing. Well, I, I'm I'm glad I'm glad you feel that way because that's um, that was one of the points that actually got me into the idea in the first place. Is you know when I was reading through Blight's book and and he's not the only person who said this, but that um, you know the military memory of the war is above the battle romance, and it. Well, I just don't really think so. And going into these regimental sure. histories, I mean, what what is striking about them is, you know, certainly they're not going to show you every wart, uh, and they're not going to drag themselves through the mud. I mean, they're certainly going to toot their own horn. But at the same time, I mean, they're often very ju- very judicious about what they say, uh, very complete, uh, and and often very very revealing. In, in whatever mode you want to look at, uh, look at him at. I was, I mean, my interest of obviously was the emancipation question. But um, if you want to look at them for for purposes of studying combat itself, uh, they are they've, they've they, got so I, much to say. They have a heck of a lot to say, and I, I think, well, this is this is Hinman's well, fic, fictional work, but but when he starts to talk in in Cy Clegg about uh, Grant and Sherman reinventing the war and how it, it it will be prosecuted now and how the northern soldiers respond to that. I mean, that's very important stuff. It, it, um, it really is. Unfortunately, you and I have come to the end of our time to discuss this important stuff. Uh, the, the, the calendar marches on and the next show waits in the wings, so <laughs> we'll have to go and talk more another time about The Good Men Who Won the War, Army of the Cumberland Veterans, and Emancipation Memory by Robert Hunt. But Robert, thanks so much for being on the show. Well, enjoy, enjoy being on it. Thank you very much. And listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Mm-hmm.